Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Emily Lawson, a PhD student at the University of British Columbia. We'll be talking about her research in Indian philosophy and its relationship to Western philosophy with respect to the philosophy of imagination and the philosophy of death. If, after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Emily, you can email her at mlawson at student.ubc.ca or you can follow her on Twitter at Emily Lawson Poet. Emily Lawson, welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. Thank you so much for having me. So I wonder if you can tell us about your experiences studying philosophy as an undergraduate and kind of how it shaped your interests in philosophy today. Sure. I went to a strange and fantastic undergraduate school called Hampshire College. It's an experimental school founded in the 70s, and it has no grades and no majors. You design your own major. So it actually works a lot like grad school in that you have a committee, you design a major, you design all your own classes, and then you do a big thesis project at the end for your entire fourth year. So I had a strong interest in the American transcendentalists. And from there, I became interested in Vedanta. And I took an incredible class with Nalini Bhushan, who's one of my academic and personal heroes at Smith College on Indian philosophy, and was astounded by the depth and absolute staggering uh, variety and scale of Indian philosophical traditions. And uh, realized that the the Western canon is only a very small part of the picture and committed myself pretty early to studying what I considered world philosophy or cross-cultural philosophy. And I had the freedom to do that. And I was able to take classes across the five college consortium. I found myself studying classes in Islamic intellectual history or Jewish theology. And it involved a lot of religious studies, a lot of area studies a lot of philosophy. And when it came time to do my dissertation, I was very interested in Indian philosophy broadly, but my focus ended up being independence era Indian philosophy. I was working uh, very closely with Jay Garfield, my advisor, and Nalini Bhushan, who I mentioned on their book, Minds Without Fear, Indian Philosophy in English. And I ended up writing a big project on Sri Arbindo Ghosh, And Aurobindo was an independence era philosopher, thinker, polymath, guru, revolutionary. And I saw some interesting connections with his work and Friedrich Nietzsche. So I write about metaphysics in Nietzsche and Aurobindo. Had a great time. Ended up, as you can tell, with a very niche (laughs) focus area. Um, (laughs) And uh, yeah, I had a, a bit of a zigzagging path to philosophy. Yeah. But very interesting indeed. I'd like to ask you a little bit more about the um, work in global philosophy and Indian philosophy in particular. But first of all, you, you mentioned the no grades aspect of your undergrad education. I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how that worked. Mm-hmm. And one thing in particular is obviously when you come to apply to grad school, right? Like the transcripts are kind of a big part of that. You know, the grades that you've got on various courses and the grade that you come out with overall. So how does that work when you, you know, you're applying to grad schools? What, what, how can you justify your ability in philosophy, really, without, without grades. Ah, so we don't have grades, but we get something better, which is a written evaluation. 
on the one hand, I did have grades because I took so many classes across the five college consortium. So I had a GPA that was derived from those, like, I don't know, 14, 15 classes. But the Hampshire transcript is actually sort of a stack of recommendation letters, almost. So most professors will write between uh, a page and two pages about how you did in the class, what your interests were, where you were growing. So it's, it's actually a pretty amazing record of your undergraduate work. And I'm a huge advocate of no grades, actually, in evaluation. So, you know, when you TA, you, you'll either just be grading a lot of papers or grading tests, or you'll also run a seminar, a discussion group with the undergraduates. So I have some experience doing that here, but I also taught classes. I have a whole other life. I'm getting an MFA in poetry oh. at the University of Virginia. And there I taught undergraduate classes in creative writing and uh, composition and students would be very, very focused on the grade that they would get. And there's sort of the, this mindset of figuring out what do I have to do to check off each box of the rubric? What's the minimum that I have to do to get an A or a B if I'm happy with a B? And so one thing that happens is that you spend hours and hours and hours giving them personalized feedback on their papers and advice on how to grow. Often if they've got a grade they're satisfied with, they won't even read it. Or if they're not convinced they can do anything to change the grade, they won't read it either. There's a real shift in mindset. So at Hampshire College, to be fair, this is a self-selecting group of weirdos <laughs> who have chosen this school. So who knows if it would work universally. And also there was massive attrition. So a lot of students would come to Hampshire being like, ah, oh, no grades, fantastic. And then they would get bad evaluations and they would fail, <laughs> they'd fail out, you know, or they would, or they would leave because it also requires being very driven and being able to take the reins on your own education and decide, okay, you know, if three years down the road, I want to have some level of expertise in this thinking backwards. What are the classes I need to take right now to make that happen? And people are young and that's not always easy. But what I found there was a student body that was outrageously passionate. Class discussion was fearless, intimate, extremely erudite because no one was on edge in that, you know, about being given a number on how they were doing. There was this totally sincere and intense commitment to what they were doing because it's just, it's just all on you. You're there because you want to be there and because you want to learn with other people. So for me, it was fantastic. It was really nice. And I, I do actually, I think that grading is an issue in university. I don't know if going grade free would work on a big university level, but a lot of things aren't working on a big university level you know, having 200 person classes where the students attend lecture. And then, you know, and this is in, in the US and North America, a TA who barely knows them grades all of those papers. The TA is usually a graduate student with extremely limited time, not getting paid very much. <laughs> That's actually not so true in Canada. They're much better up here. You mentioned Canada, obviously the unique sort of university experience that you had and how it's, you know, there's something about how you were and your cohort were particularly driven, particularly passionate and then able to cultivate a really nice interest in sort of unique philosophical areas that not everyone gets to study at, at a high level. I'm wondering, do you, do you find it difficult to find sort of Canadian and American programs that could sort of accommodate the specializations that you had in your, in your areas of interest? Yes. So um, when I first applied to PhD programs, 
I just applied to one at the University of New Mexico because Emily McRae was there. She's a fantastic scholar. She does Buddhism and Indian philosophy. But then I got into all these poetry MFA programs, decided to do the MFA first. And then when I finished that degree, all these hires had been made in Indian philosophy. Evan Thompson moved to UBC. They hired Kat Pruitt. And those are the two people who co-advised me. And they're absolutely phenomenal. In my second round of applications, things had changed. So hires had been made in Indian philosophy at UBC and at the University of Toronto. So I applied to both of those places in New Mexico. Again, I got into all three. So I had to decide, but really, as far as I was aware, those were kind of my options in North America. So there were quite limited options, but they were all fantastic. Toronto has a very strong program. They had Gennard Ganeri, Eliza Freshi, and um, they've just hired Nalanjan Das, who's incredible. And at University of British Columbia, I'm able to work with Evan Thompson and Catherine Pruitt, and both of them are phenomenal scholars, and I'm really happy to be working with them. So it's a very good fit. But yeah, it's not, you can't apply to anywhere if you want to specialize in Indian philosophy, at least not yet. Hopefully that will change. Oh, wow. So your options were were quite limited then. Yes. And obviously Indian philosophy not being something, as you say, that's taught in too many North American programs. I feel like a kind of byproduct of that is when people talk about Indian philosophy, they talk about it as a single unified thing. But I imagine that there's lots of different ways that you can approach Indian philosophy. And I imagine there's a lot going on within Indian philosophy. So what I'd like to know is, can you kind of categorize Indian philosophy in the same way that we categorize contemporary analytic philosophy? Like, do you have some epistemologists, metaphysicists, ethicists, or is, uh, is there some other way that you would categorize and approach Indian philosophy? So you could try to shoehorn <laughs> Indian philosophical traditions into Western molds. But I think it would be kind of a fruitless project. For instance, uh, the Nyaya school of philosophy is largely characterized as an epistemological school. And that's mostly accurate, but also not. So I think looking at the ways Indian philosophy has traditionally been categorized as you know, scholarly, monastic, intellectual traditions. So the six classical schools of Indian philosophy, Sankhya, Yoga, Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Mimamsa, and Vedanta, As you can imagine, there's a massive amount in there. But then there's everything outside those six schools. Sikh philosophy, for instance. Buddhist philosophy is enormous. You know, its own multi-variant, multi-tradition subfield. So there's Madhyamaka, Yogacara, and so on. There's Jain philosophy, which almost no one studies from a philosophical perspective and is fascinating and rich. Charvaka, the realist school. And then what I've turned, oh yeah, everything in the colonial tradition, uh, Indian philosophy in English is its own huge category. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of cross-pollination of ideas, uh, reclamation of Indian philosophy. That, that whole area is fascinating, but you can certainly find ethics, metaphysics, epistemology, and so on in that tradition. And then there's the Shaivist school, which is where I've found myself focusing, and Alankara, Indian aesthetics. So if anything, the tradition is larger than the Western tradition. And to say that it's it's very different and categorized quite differently is not to say that there can't be rich cross-cultural interaction of ideas there, because those questions those old philosophical questions, you know, what is the nature of being? How should we live? What is our engagement with art? 
what is truth, what is knowledge, uh, all of this is all of these questions are being asked and rigorously debated and given very sophisticated answers in many, many different branches of Indian philosophy. That's so interesting. And thank you for kind of giving us that survey, showing us that it's not this like monolithic thing, that there's so many branches to it. Yes. Just, I wonder if you could give us a taste of the kind of cross-cultural interactions between maybe Indian philosophy and Western philosophy. So I know you have a sideline, or I'm not sure if it's your main interest in the philosophy of imagination. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the insights that Indian philosophy offers that perhaps the Western canon does not, just to get a taste of what's unique about it. Sure. So yeah, philosophy of imagination is, is a sort of my budding research interest. It's the direction I'm driving towards. So I'm definitely not an expert yet. And I want to approach it from philosophy of mind, uh, as well as Indian philosophy. But one thing I find very interesting is that philosophy of imagination is pretty new. And when people seem to discuss history of philosophy of imagination, they look to Hume, certainly, Sartre, of course, but there isn't really in the West like a tradition of taking imagination as like as a focus. But if you turn, for instance, to Abhinava Gupta, Utpaladeva, these are thinkers in the Kashmir Shaiva school. You see a lot of rigorous theorizing about imagination and its powers. So a lot of that happens within aesthetics in sort of a really rich and interesting discussion of what happens to the viewer of a play or the reader of a poem imaginatively as they co-create a text. And again, there's an asterisk by all of this in that for every view that I present or even question that I present, there's going to be rigorous debate and back and forth within the tradition. But there's, yeah, there's just so much there. And many of these philosophical traditions also have counterparts or are deeply enmeshed with religious traditions, particularly visualization, meditation. So you see that in Tantra, in Shaivist Tantra, um, in different varieties of Tibetan Buddhist Tantra. So there's a fantastic book called More Than Real, A History of the Imagination in South Asia by David Shulman. And it really gets into uh, ways that imagination was seen as central and seen as not this sort of like byproduct or something that goes on in our minds, but doesn't really exist. But the idea that, say, a temple that you build in your mind with your imagination to a god might actually be more beautiful than a temple that's actually built with clay and brick in the real world. And the god actually might prefer to visit your imaginary temple. So there's just uh, it's a it's a topic that's taken very seriously in terms of metaphysics, in terms of of aesthetics, and in terms of how the mind is conceived. So there's a lot to dive into there. And to take this in a slightly different direction, so you've obviously spoken there about how we can relate the philosophy of imagination to Indian philosophy, and you also alluded earlier that you like to approach the philosophy of imagination from the perspective of the philosophy of mind. Mm -hmm. But I gather that there's a, a third strand to your work here where you've been approaching the philosophy of, of imagination from the perspective of the philosophy of death, linking the two together. I'd love it if you could tell us a bit about how those two things interact, how they relate. Sure. It's something that I'm trying to work out. So philosophy of death is probably my earliest and deepest topical philosophical interest. And just this past year at age 27, 
I had a huge medical crisis. I almost died. I had several emergency surgeries and we discovered that I had a tumor the size of a grapefruit in my colon and I had stage three colon cancer in my twenties. So it turns out I had a very, very, very rare and unlucky gene that had more or less guaranteed that that would happen. So I was given about a 50% chance of surviving to my thirties. And as you can imagine, this was difficult to assimilate, but I felt very grateful that I had studied philosophy of death because I felt like some of those questions that punch you in the face when you get a catastrophic diagnosis about what it means to die, what it's like to die, about nothingness, about afterlife. I had had the time to consider in a sterilized theoretical setting. And of course, one of the other things I learned was about kind of the poverty of that literature in some ways. So we see sort of on the continental tradition, kind of a phenomenological focus on like death as one zone, as something you face completely alone, as ultimate nothingness and so forth. And then more in the analytic tradition, there are more, you know, puzzles, you know, there's a lot in ethics, puzzles about should we be afraid of death? You know, I think when you're in a hospital bed, incredibly drugged and in tremendous pain, the sterility and emptiness of some of those questions really comes to view. So one thing I think is quite missing in the philosophy of death now, and I'm talking about the Western tradition, is a focus on intersubjectivity. The idea that something that death is something you face completely alone doesn't seem right. And in fact, like I was really struck by at times when death seemed like it could be close, or I at least had a sense of that I had not been prepared for of my God, when I die, I'm not going to be probably, unless I'm very lucky, lying peacefully in a bed, contemplating, you know, my contemplating nothingness. Like, no, of course not. I'll be worried about my husband, my parents, you know, the people who are with me and trying to comfort them. So there's a lot, I think that we can, there are a lot of places to go, but I, I, circling back to your question, thinking about preparation for death as an imaginative project, I think is a path forward, not as a, as a, a hyper-intellectualized, what does it mean to face nothingness, capital N? Which is like, well, first of all, there's literally nothing to be afraid of. You won't face nothingness more than you face anything else because you will not experience it. But we're, it's an interesting because that nothingness kind of presents us with an empty canvas where we can imaginatively project many different things, which are true. For instance, it's just as true that I will have all my atoms be recycled and become a tree as it is that I will face nothingness, if that makes sense, given that I will experience neither. But in my imaginative preparation for this experience, these are choices that I can make. Well, thank you for that answer, Emily. And one thing I'd like to maybe look at from possibly a slightly different direction is how you've talked about the sterility, the sterility of the way that the Western tradition approaches the philosophy of death. Um, now, obviously, we've talked about a, a lot of themes throughout this interview, one of which has been Indian philosophy in the past, and perhaps non-Western philosophy more generally. Have you found that non-Western philosophical traditions themselves approach philosophy of death 
without this kind of sterility? It's something that I'm still exploring, but at a first pass, very much. There's a lot more emphasis on the physical body. So in a lot of Buddhist meditative traditions, death is not this pure abstraction as it often is in the West, but you're thinking about your body decomposing, about your loved one's bodies decomposing in incredibly graphic and upsetting ways often. And in Kashmir Shaivism, the charnel ground, the cremation ground is an important context of that tradition where you would see tantric practitioners rubbing themselves with the ashes of the dead. I mean, how much more visceral and unsanitized a relationship to death can you get? And that's, you know, I'm, that's not philosophy exactly, but that level of, of interest in death is, that's there. And that's kind of the ground for some of these philosophical traditions. I don't know if I, you know, if a philosophy of death so-called could be easily reconstructed. It's something I'm certainly thinking about. But yeah, because these philosophical traditions are so related to uh, ritual and to meditative practice, even though, to be clear, the philosophy often, it, it is quite uh, quite clear and argumentative and philosophy and, and, and has every virtue of philosophy that we look for now. But yes, I think that there are different orientations towards death for sure. Mm. Well, I mean, because you get this thing in, in the Western tradition of philosophy, right? Where like the Socratic question is how should we live and stuff like that. Mm. And it's just weird how like in the Western tradition, they've departed so much from the sort of practical advice that's given. It's such like, like a profound like interpersonal way that you get in the Indian tradition or at least from what I'm getting you know we're really exposed to the way other people behave and think and you know you get these really visceral depictions of of what death is and and I suppose it's quite ironic that they both I think are trying to would you say they're both trying to help us understand that question of how we should live but that somehow the Indian philosophers or or these traditions are actually offering better advice <laughs> I don't know I don't know if I would go so far I think a lot of that Indian philosophy shares many of the virtues of Western philosophy, but also many of the same pitfalls. So as much as I've just spoken about death and this confrontation of like the visceral, the disgusting, the physical, there's also uh, at the same time in many of those very same traditions and different traditions in India, a, uh, a soteriological element. And understanding that all of these worldly things are to be transcended. So often in Buddhism, you get, again, I just want to put a giant asterisk by everything, saying that any Buddhist Taoist is, is completely disagreed with by somebody else. But often we get these depictions of the disgusting, of like corpses and especially of women's bodies, interestingly, in order to propel you in the other direction, for you to aim for liberation and to transcend the worldly realm. So yeah, worldliness and otherworldliness are, are huge, huge themes. And the, the pull from one to the other is, yeah, is, is a big dynamic in a lot of these traditions. Emily, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was wonderful chatting with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest 
at gmail.com.